the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. We are learning what it means to be like Christ, how to be like Christ, and how to put on that Christ-likeness. It's a calling we're looking at this week on Abounding Grace. Join us. be like Christ? Well, once we understand what it means to be like Christ, how do you live like it? How do you put on Christ-likeness? That is what we're looking at today on Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner, the ministry of Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. It's a tall order, but indeed anybody who longs to be a servant of Christ longs for this to take place in their lives, no matter what the challenge or struggle might be. Join us as we are encouraged from the Apostle Paul's words in Colossians 3, verses 5 through 17, putting on Christ-likeness. Here's Pastor Gary Wagner with today's program. Putting on Christ-likeness. The point of our text today is very forthright. It is that in our pursuit of Christ-likeness, we as believers are to put off all of those sins that are contrary to that Christ-likeness and to put on those qualities that are consistent with Christ-righteousness and Christ-likeness, which are perfectly displayed in the life of the exalted Christ, he who sits at the right hand of God. And it is only by the strength that we received by virtue of our union with Christ that we are able to obey the directions that our passage gives us. Therefore, in living the Christian life, we are to live every day striving to be Christ-like and in total dependence upon the all-sufficient power of the grace that only Jesus Christ can give us. Now, let me give you an outline of our text Verses 12 through 17 define the nature of Christ's likeness. And the likeness is not some intangible thing that you can't sink your teeth in. It is very tangible. Verse 12 and tw- verses 12 and 13 describe the virtues of Christ. Verse 14, the love of Christ. Verse 15, the peace of Christ. Verse 16, the word of Christ. And verse 17, the name of Christ. And as we understand these verses by God's grace, we will understand what this Christ-likeness is that we are to be pursuing in this life by the grace of God. First of all, notice the demand. He says, put on Christ-like virtues. Now, over in the book of Galatians, Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, kindness, long-suffering, etc. Well, the virtues of Christ are the fruit of the Spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit takes these wonderful virtues out of the life of Christ 
and he plants them in the hearts of believers, and then he enables believers to cultivate and manifest those Christ-like virtues in their lives. So when we talk about the virtues of Christ, we are talking about the fruit of the Spirit. We're talking about things that the Spirit has taken out of the life of Christ and placed in you and I by His grace, and He enables us to manifest this in our relationships. Now, we can only understand our text in light of verse 10. Verse 10 says, having put off the old self, we have put on the new self. Now, that's not a process. That is a past tense verb, an aorist, that means at a divisive, decisive point in the past, there was a radical break with our previous life. That that old self that once was totally depraved and condemned by God and separated us from God has been put to death. And now we are a new people. We are new selves with new perspectives and new power. And now life is in a process. We are every day being gradually sanctified more and more into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So as we seek to pursue pursue Christ's likeness in our life, the Holy Spirit empowers us to be Christ-like, Because we are now new creatures in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, everything has become new. It's not schizophrenic. You are not a new person and an old person in here. Strive one, striving for victory over the other. And you feed the new man and starve the old man. The old man has been put to death decisively. We are new men and women in Christ. Of course, we're not perfect yet. So we still have this conflict with remaining sin within us. And it is from the power that we have as new people in Christ that we are able to win the battle. And to put off those sins we know we should not be involved in. And to put on these Christ-like virtues. Now notice also the persons who are being addressed. Who is commanded here in verses 12 12 and 13 to put on Christ-like qualities? It says three things about this person. It says in verse 12, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on the heart of compassion. Paul loves to emphasize these things over and over. That we are what we are, not because of who we are, but because of a choice made about us before the beginning of the world. That in the councils of eternity, before the foundations of the world were laid out of a mass of fallen humanity in God's mind, He chose the people to bestow his love upon and to bring into fellowship with him. That is the teaching of the Old Testament and the New Testament. That we are chosen of God. Not because God saw something in us that was good and said, I like that. 
I think I'll choose that person. Or this person deserves to be one of the elect. Or this guy's done well and he has a big bank account. I'm going to choose him. No, it is because it pleased God. He chose us who were not worthy of being chosen. God chose us to be his people before the beginning of time. And what is the effect of that choice? The effects of that choice is holiness. So here Christians are said to be those chosen of God before time began. And the effect of that choice is holiness. Do you know that no one on this earth would live a holy life unless God chose that person before the beginning of time? Ephesians 1, 3 and following says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we might be holy and blameless before him. That is the effect. That is how you can tell whether or not God chose you before the beginning of time. Are you living a holy life? I didn't say perfect life. Are you living a holy life, seeking to serve Christ out of faith in Him that moves you to bring everything in your life into conformity to His Word? That if you have been chosen by God, there will be a holiness in your life. Now, the next word is the reason God chose us. He is addressing those chosen of God, the choice manifesting itself in holiness of life in his beloved. Now, Paul loves these people, and he can speak of them as his beloved friends, but in context here, he is talking about these people as the beloved of God. That's the reason God chose them. Before the beginning of time, God set his love on his people, Romans 8, for whom God foreknew. And remember, the Hebrew word for know means love. For whom God foreknew or loved, he predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. So before the beginning of time, God made these people his beloved. Paul began the book of Romans by saying, to the beloved of God in Rome. Notice he didn't say to beloved Rome. He made a distinction between those in Rome who God loved and the rest of the city of Rome. God set his love upon his people before the beginning of time. He was moved by his good pleasure to choose them out of darkness to salvation and an adoption into holiness of life. And now that holiness manifests itself in their lives, not because they deserve any of these things, but listen, to display the richness and the greatness of God's grace. So when Paul gives these directions to people, he's not talking to everyone in the whole wide world. Because those are not Christians. And they cannot understand these things. 
They cannot perform these duties. He's talking to those people to whom God has chosen, to whom God set his love upon, and who by his grace and his regenerating Holy Spirit has produced holiness of life in them. And then he says to these people, that is to you if you are one of these, those who are appointed to eternal life believe. Acts 13, 48. That is how you know you are one of the elect of God. You want to live a holy life. You grieve when you don't live a holy life. And above all things, you love the Lord Jesus Christ. And you believe in his every word. As many as are appointed or ordained to eternal life, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what that broken Bible, the living Bible says in Acts 13, 48 that I just read? It perverts this verse. It says, as many as wanted eternal life believed. It takes salvation totally out of the hands of God and puts it into the hands of man. That is not what it says in the Greek. It is a literal perversion of the text. The great proof that God has chosen you is that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to wonder at all of your life, all of your life. Hmm, did God choose me? Am I one of the chosen of God? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you love him above all else? Are you seeking to live a holy and blameless life before him, depending upon the Holy Spirit to bring you into greater and greater Christ-likeness? Then there's no doubt about it. The only people in all of the world who can do that are those whom God chose to be his own, upon whom he set his love. Now, what is it he calls us to do? What are these virtues in the life of Christ that Paul calls us to put on? That is to manifest in our life. Notice there in verse 12. It says, first of all, to put on a heart of compassion. A heart of compassion is a deeply felt affection for Christ that yearns for a Christ-likeness in yourself and your fellow believers. Now, if you are chosen and beloved of God, believing, living a holy life, then it is there. It may not be there as brightly in you as it is in others. It may be dim at times in your life and bright at other times, but it is there. And now he is saying, bring it to the surface. Be consistent now with this heart of compassion. You, you have it as a Christian, if you are a Christian. You have a deeply felt affection for Christ. And it's not just an orthodox understanding of the doctrines of Christ, but a very deeply felt affection for the person of Christ that manifests itself in a yearning for a Christ-likeness in yourself and in other people. So before I go on, I ask you this question. Do you have that deep affection? 
I mean, do you truly love Jesus? Do you have a yearning? Yearning to me is more than just a desire. Do you have a yearning to be like the person for whom you have this deep affection? Christians do. Non-Christians don't. So if you find you don't have these things in your life, cry out to God to save you. But if you do, then pray. Lord, help me to manifest this heart of compassion more consistently in my life. Then the next word is kindness. Put on kindness. That is goodness of heart. It is the opposite of malice or the desire to do evil. Kindness is that which draws people to us. If you are kind, people want to be around you. You make other people feel important. You make other people feel like they are precious to you. And Jesus Christ is the kindest man who ever lived. The Holy Spirit took that virtue of kindness out of his life, and he planted it into your life. And as a Christian, now by the power of the Holy Spirit, be consistent and manifest that kindness in your life. The next word is humility. Humility is a virtue that is despised by the world of intellectuals. A humble person considers other people more important than himself. A humble person considers the interests and needs of other people more important than his own needs and interests. You see a great illustration of humility in the life of the centurion. Do you remember? He asked Jesus to come to his house to heal his slave. The Pharisees did everything they could to talk Jesus into going. They said, Jesus, you've got to go to this guy's slave and help him. This guy has built us a synagogue. He's one of the most patriotic men we know. He is worth it. Go to his house and heal his slave. So Jesus goes to the centurion's house, and here is what Luke 7, 6 says. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and in, when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself further. For I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. I'm not worthy to have Jesus in my home. But Jesus came because this is the kind of man Jesus wants. Then do you remember the two people praying in Luke 18:9? One was a Pharisee who said, Lord, you're lucky to have me. You're lucky to have me on your side. I'm not like other people. It's a lot better. I'm a lot better than other people. Then you have the tax collector. And it says in Luke 18, 13, standing some distance away, he was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, that is true humility. A person who sees himself, and only a person who sees himself as the object of God's grace and mercy can be humble and consider other people better than himself. So you can tell a lot about a person 
as to how you pray to the Lord with reference to humility. Do you pray, Lord, keep me humble? Or do you pray, Lord, make me humble? If you say, keep me humble, it's easy to know how highly you regard yourself. Lord, make me humble. Break me. Give me a high view of yourself and a low view of myself that makes me want to put other people before myself. Then Paul says, put on gentleness or meekness. And that is a quiet spirit of submission to God, even in the face of provocation. When you are provoked, you don't get all steered up. But meekness is not weakness. It is not spinelessness. One old commentator said, He who is truly meek will always bow to God in serene resignation. He who is under the influence of divine grace does not resent a human injury. He will not quarrel with divine allotment, end quote. Now what that means is, that someone who truly depends on the Lord and who is humble is someone who does not resent it and get huffy when others hurt his feelings. And he has no quarrel with God or with whatever God chooses to bring into his life. That, brethren, is a meek person. Then we are to put on patience. Now remember, all of these qualities were manifested perfectly in Jesus. We are to put on long-suffering. What is that? That is the resolute refusal to retaliate, which is actually the natural response of the unbeliever. You hurt me. I'm going to hurt you. It's not fair. You're not going to get away with that. Long-suffering and patience is the resolute refusal to retaliate. The Greek word for long-suffering means long-mindedness as opposed to shortness of temper. Then you have these words in verse 13. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Here's another virtue of Christ you are to put on. And that is mutual forbearance, enduring one another, bearing with one another, putting up with one another. That is such practical counsel. And yet it is so rarely practiced in churches today. Just put up with one another. You hurt my feelings. You said something I don't like. Oh, you offended me. It's almost as if we believe the worst sin anyone can commit is to offend me or to offend you. And actually, it's like we are on the hunt for people to offend us. Don't worry about this. Pray that someone will put up with you as you put up with each other. Then there is mutual forgiveness. Now, it says here to forgive each other. But it says literally in Greek, and this can be misunderstood today in our highly psychologized world, it says, 
forgiving our, yourselves. Now, don't interpret that in light of modern psychology that says you've got to forgive yourself. The problem with the person who's going through stress and strain after the breakup of a marriage or whatever is that he has forgiven everyone else, but he has not forgiven himself for these, these terrible sins he has committed against his wife. Listen, when you commit a terrible sin, you cry out to the one against whom you have sinned to forgive you and to have mercy on you and to wash you clean in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then don't you ever, don't you ever forgive yourself. Don't ever forgive yourself. I don't care what psychologists say today. I mean, who do you think you are? I forgive myself. You don't forgive yourself. Let me ask you, did Paul forgive himself for arresting Christians that he executed? No. Every time he thought about persecuting Christians after he became a Christian, it broke him. He could never forgive himself. Don't even think about forgiving yourself. That's not the issue. The issue is, has God forgiven you? Well, that's all the time we have today. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. If you'd like to review today's broadcast, we would invite you to contact us for a copy of the program. They're available for just $5. Mention today's date and we'll send a CD your way. Here's where to write to us. PMB number 402, 1484 Pollard Road. That's in Los Gatos, California. The zip code is 95032. Again, that's PMB number 402, 1484 Pollard Road. Los Gatos, California, 95032 is that address. Our phone number, if you'd rather call, 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. Our website is reformedheritage.org, and if you'd like to join us for worship, Sunday services are at 2 p.m. We meet at the Lone Hill Church on 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions at our website, reformedheritage.org, or again, call 408-866-5607. Thank you for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you next time we get together as we continue our studies in God's Word. Until then, may Christ be your abounding grace.